0: Welcome, everyone, to a special episode of the Climate Ready podcast. I'm your host, Alex Moroner of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, joined, as always, by my co-host, Ingrid Timbo.
1: Hey, everybody. We're working hard on the next season of Climate Ready, and we've got all sorts of great episodes lined up on the intersection of climate and water, covering topics this year like the role of the private sector in adaptation, the climate food water challenges, urban resilience, and plenty more. I hope you're as excited as we are about the next season. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to click on the subscribe button to stay in the loop for when we release new episodes.
0: While we continue to work on season three, we thought we'd drop in with a special episode in the meantime. If you recall, last season we added a new segment called Postcards from the Future, where we heard from friends and colleagues about the many ways climate change may play out in the future. Authors of the postcards offered up some really unique perspectives each and every time. For today, we've compiled all of season two's postcards into one special episode. So sit back and enjoy. We'll be back at you with some fresh episodes coming soon. We'll kick off this episode with a postcard from Agua's Executive Director and the producer of Climate Ready, Dr. John Matthews.
2: From my perspective, very few people are dealing with transformation, even in places where it's well advanced. Most of us think That's the future for my grandkids. But if you're under 70, it's probably going to be your future too. With postcards from the future, we at Climate Ready were hoping we could begin to talk about how some of us around the planet are beginning to live in this new future, a place and time potentially so different that a lot of the decisions we're making now may seem strange, irrelevant, maybe even wrong and misguided. So here's my postcard. When you go to your mailbox, there's a postcard inside. I always look at the picture first, you probably do too, and there you see a small bright orange frog. The print in the picture says, Golden Toad, rest in peace, 1990. The other side of the card reads, Give up on your grief, we don't have time for that. The card is addressed to conservation biologists. Although I now think of myself as a sustainable development person, I was trained as a conservation biologist and have read widely in the field. Conservation in its modern form is only a little over a century old. And from my perspective, it has two big ideas. First, define your targets based on some point in the past. And then try to manage your system to get back to that state. When I began working seriously in climate change issues about 15 or 16 years ago, my first reaction was of deep grief because I couldn't think of how conservation made sense anymore. You can't fence out climate change. And we know so little about how species react to climate shifts that trying to predict responses seemed impossibly hard. If we keep using our current pathways, I worried that in effect, we might be steering species and places back to a past climate that may not exist again for millennia. We might be making things worse, even while we're trying to make them better. For about two years, I had a funding source that asked me to visit university campuses in the U.S. and to talk to students about climate change. I had to give a pretty canned talk that I didn't have much say over. The message was supposed to be that climate adaptation was something positive we could do, that it was actionable and hopeful. But there wasn't a lot behind that message. When I got to the polar bear picture halfway through the slideshow, I often had to stop for a moment. The next slide had images of the golden toad, a Central American species that was the first that we know of to go extinct solely because of climate change as its climate zone effectively slid off the top of its mountain habitats. Then there was a picture of Edith's checkerspot, a North American butterfly going through a very similar type of contraction. I remember giving the talk at one university to a larger crowd where I literally choked. I almost burst into tears at those images behind me. I hated that talk because it bluntly reminded me of the deep losses we face, which are more or less baked in now. They're not just going to happen, they are happening. I don't think I inspired anyone in that talk. I certainly didn't come across as an optimist. But at the same time I was giving these talks at universities, I also began working directly with decision makers on water management issues around the world. They would tell me, we're really worried about uncertainty, about new types of extreme events, about what sustainability looks like. And for them, I had really good messages, positive ones, actionable messages. I felt excited and energized by those interactions. I felt like I was solving problems, mobilizing resources. I couldn't help golden toads or polar bears, but I could help a lot of other species and help people too. I could slow the next wave, maybe even stop the wave after that. Those university talks made me coin a new term to describe my own experience, climate grief. A big part of climate grief is knowing that how we view conservation, literally conserving things, by trying to keep them the same or to move them backwards doesn't make much sense anymore when things need to change and evolve. And we need to take a different approach. We can't conserve places anymore, but we can help them adjust, adapt, and transform. And to do that, we need to accept our grief. Climate change is happening. Places and things we care deeply about will be profoundly altered, and some of them will be lost to all but memory and photographs. If we can move past our grief, then our role as conservationists can shift to the right side of history, from sadness to courage. Two summers ago, I began teaching a course at a university. One of the students came up from the mountains of California. She said, I live in a place where a new kind of drought has killed millions of trees. The forests look intact, but all of these conifers are now standing dead. Millions of trees, and one day they will burn, and there probably won't be a forest that comes back. It will be something else. She was profoundly silent that day in the class, frozen in her pain, her awareness of the communities within that forest and those hills locked into an economy that was already half-dead, feeling trapped. I knew she was deep in the middle of her own climate grief, but by the end of the class, she'd gone through a big evolution in herself. I feel like my job now is to help prepare for the change to come, she said, hoping these communities begin to develop a new economic and environmental basis for themselves. I had nothing but admiration for her growth and for refocusing her work. She was making a choice to move out of her grief. Last winter, I gave a talk at another university. This time, all the slides and all of the images were mine. No polar bears, no golden toads. At the end, there was a panel discussion with other people working on climate change adaptation issues, a lawyer, a climate scientist, another NGO person. The moderator asked us, finally, what can we do to prepare for changes that are happening here? The other panelists spoke about specific types of impacts that we could expect, mostly in the short term, about monitoring and forecasting, a lot of rearranging of things in the drawer. I had a different response. I said, we need to give up on the past. Big changes are coming and we need our imagination to help us understand those changes. Computers and models are really limited here. What does the future look like without a winter snowpack? The mountains where I live burn only rarely. What happens when fires are a regular part of the landscape? In an area that's now water-rich, what happens with new kinds of water scarcity? Or when new immigrants and community needs appear from distant places as people relocate? I spoke to the moderator afterwards, a friend of mine and a new mother. She quoted a movie called The Fellowship of the Ring. One of the main characters says, in exhaustion and desperation, I wish this bad thing had not happened in my time. An older character looks at him sadly, saying, So do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. There's so many smart people working in ecosystems and resource management. Their grief is understandable. It's reasonable. But that quote captures my hope for conservation today, for now, that we make a better decision of what to do with the time That is given us.
0: In our second episode, we heard from Stephanie Lyons, a policy analyst at the OECD, with a moving story all the way from Vietnam.
3: About five years ago, I watched out my window as torrential rain lashed against the glass and the orange streetlights flickered out. The branches of the tropical trees along our street were bouncing and lurching towards the ground, like they were trying to find something to cling on to and the howling of the wind really did sound like a pack of animals. This was my first time living in Southeast Asia during typhoon season. I was there working on climate change projects, and that day our boss had told us to stay home. A typhoon was heading for northern Vietnam, and we'd been waiting for the storm to hit all afternoon. Unusually for Hanoi, there was not a single person in a plastic poncho pushing their way through the rain on their motorbike. Not a single car on the road. The streets were empty, and the downpour seemed relentless. Suddenly, light switched on in the building opposite. It was the only building in our street with a power generator that actually worked. A moment later, I saw a woman creep out of a neighbouring building and walk out into the water that was rushing past as high as her knees. She was carrying something. She scurried over to the building, ran up the steps, and put the thing down under the entrance. As she ran back into her home, I realised that she'd plugged something into a power board that was poking around the doorway. I glimpsed a tiny red light shining out through the sheets of rain. It was a rice cooker. My neighbour was cooking her family dinner, on the steps outside, during a blackout, in a tropical storm. Comical as the sight was, it was one of many little things that have stuck with me as a sign of how commonplace extreme storms are for people in places like Vietnam. When extreme weather hits they're pretty used to systems just shutting down and wherever they can they find ways to adapt. Ways that might be abrupt and reactive or more deliberate and routine. Ways to bounce back and continue their lives. As part of my work in different countries I've had the chance to see lots of different types of adaptation all the way from people making small changes to their everyday practices and behaviour through to major infrastructure projects that have increased the physical capacity of communities to deal with impacts. Only a month before this storm, another deadly typhoon had hit Vietnam's central coast. In the aftermath, my team had visited Da Nang to see the results of a recent project. Working with the local women's union, it had delivered retrofits and training to a group of women householders to help make their homes more resilient to storms. When the typhoon hit, it was these efforts that kept the participating households safe while other homes around them had suffered heavy damage. It's examples like these that I think of when explaining what adaptation means to friends or family who haven't really thought much about it. Most people know, at least in some abstract way, that climate change means we'll see mounting impacts like these. And our challenge is to comprehend the shifts we need to make in our everyday lives. But I also think these stories are relevant in my discussions with the people I work with, governments, donors, international organisations and not for profit For a while now, everyone's been talking about the need for adaptation to be transformational. We talk a lot about fundamental shifts in systems and dismantling existing structures. We know there won't always be a backup generator to power a rice cooker during a storm. Climate change is a threat to the systems we rely on, and it demands that we change how we design and interact with them. That has to include understanding how people behave and the various social systems we interact in, and factoring this into our decisions. I wouldn't exactly call using a rice cooker in a storm an example of transformational adaptation, maybe more resilient opportunism, but I think it's important that we account for the knowledge people already have and the practices, habits and behaviours that, for better or worse, kick in when we're grappling with climate impacts. When I look back on this period in the future, I hope I'll be able to say that to understand our vulnerability and what needs to change we looked closely at how people behave in the face of both extreme events and also slower onset risks. Transformation doesn't have to seem opaque or daunting or involve starting from scratch. To figure out how to make these big shifts, we should be constantly re-examining how and why people behave in certain ways and which practices we can build on or evolve.
0: Catherine Farr, coordinator of the Oxford Water Network, Join the show with a fun and inspirational blast from the past as we heard from a 1990s superhero trying to save the planet.
4: As an 80s and 90s kid, I loved watching Captain Planet and the Planeteers with my younger brother and sister. It instilled in us not just a love of the environment, but convinced us that we, even as kids, had a role to play in protecting Earth from misuse by human society. For those less familiar with the show, Gaia, the spirit of Earth, Planet Earth sends five rings to five individuals from around the world who then work to save the planet and when needed join their rings to summon Captain Planet, a superhero who has all of their powers combined. The five planeteers are Kwame from Ghana who possesses the power of earth, Wheeler from New York City who controls fire, Lanka from the Soviet Union who harnesses wind, Ji from Japan who is the power of water, and Mati, from the Brazilian Amazon, who has heart. I wanted to write a postcard from Captain Planet reflecting on where we are today with Protecting Earth. Dear Planeteers, we've had some good times in the 90s, and we helped a generation of kids recognize that pollution was the problem and something they could help with. I know you're all busy with your sustainable development careers these days, so I was wondering if your kids, who are just about finishing high school, would have time for a year of working with me. There's a whole new generation that needs preparing for how to adapt to the changes happening to Earth's climate. Back in the 90s, we were working to save the rivers, the oceans, forests. They still need cleaning up and saving. But we need a new perspective. We need to figure out how to help places with lower stream flows and others that are getting more monsoons than ever before. I bet your kids would be up for some international adventure. There are some great ideas for adaptation coming out of Africa and Asia. I know if we all work together, we can save our planet. I've been really encouraged over the last few years that businesses are even starting to see our planet matters. I guess I have you and all those 90s kids to thank for bringing a can-do attitude to fighting for the planet by making businesses realize that without things like clean water, lots of companies can't make their products, showing others that wind can make energy constant and sustainable. Tell the kids to be ready next week. I'll stop by then. It'll be great to have a quick reunion. Oh, give them the rings. Yours ever, Captain Planet.
0: Climate-Ready co-host Ingrid Timba was kind enough to write us a really nice postcard about climate change in the classroom.
1: Climate change is water change. This is a phrase I hear a lot in my line of work. So often that it feels as though it has achieved a rare kind of universal acceptance, akin to axiomatic truth or religious proverb. So I saith unto you, climate change is water change. Utter this phrase with gravitas to a roomful of serious people, and they will, with little exception, nod seriously. Hmm. Yes. Quite so. Climate change is water change. But all joking aside, what does this phrase actually mean? The way that I understand it, this phrase means that climate change is felt or experienced most directly through changes to water's distribution over the earth. Rising temperatures alter the hydrologic cycle, resulting in too much or too little water, in the needed quantity at the right time and with the right frequency. Patterns of increasingly strong floods, drought, storms, sea level rise, and even fires are listed as evidence of this theory. Given the near universal acceptance of the interlinkages between climate and the hydrologic cycle as well as the transformational changes to that cycle that anthropogenic climate change entails, it stands to reason that in the modern university classroom, climate change would be taught alongside hydrology. Alas, at a large majority of universities, this assumption is incorrect. I myself have a master's degree in water resources management and was fortunate to get into a good master's program with a strong reputation in my field, yet there was not a single course in our curriculum devoted to the impacts of climate change on freshwater, to say nothing of learning how we might adjust and adapt to these transformations. This despite the fact that climate change has profound implications for my work and the work of my peers who manage, restore, engineer, and protect water resources. As we heard earlier in this season of the Climate Ready podcast, in our interview with Dr. Leroy Poth, co-founder of the Natural Flow Regime Concept and Environmental Flows Management, which for the past 20 years or so has been the gold standard in flow restoration and conservation, climate change greatly undermines the baseline assumptions we use for managing and restoring rivers. Today and increasingly in the future, restoration of altered streams to historical reference conditions is in many cases no longer appropriate or achievable. Yet this remains the standard to which students today are taught. This does not render these methodologies useless or obsolete. In fact, far from it. But there needs to be a real conversation about how to best teach and implement them the reality is that it doesn't matter what angle you're coming from be it science engineering or policy all aspects of water management are impacted or to put it another way water education is climate education and vice versa this does not mean that water scientists must become climate scientists but water students should be taught basic climate science alongside principles of stream ecology, flow dynamics, and water governance. In our internships and applied coursework, adaptive management principles should be taught so that future project managers can design robust projects and iterate as conditions on the ground change. But it's not just climate science that is missing from water education. While they help us reduce uncertainty, climate models can only get us so far. Humans have never been good at predicting the future, and we are not getting much better, at least at a scale that is relevant to managers. And regardless of what we do to mitigate carbon emissions now, we are facing decades of locked-in warming that will affect our planet in a number of ways, some known and some unknown. What we can say with certainty is that rising temperatures present us with a variety of risks, some more salient than others. Students need to be taught the basics of risk-based approaches so that their work is designed in a way that is low risk and accounts for multiple future scenarios. Deep uncertainty about the future means we must make decisions over time in dynamic interaction with natural and human-built systems. Climate change is transforming our planet, our cities, our livelihoods, and our institutions, providing new challenges and also opportunities for my generation and those that will come after me. My hope is that it will also transform our education systems to become more interdisciplinary so that future generations of water managers can confidently address climate uncertainty and its effects on our most precious natural resources.
0: In our fifth episode, we heard a postcard from Al Meji, an MPA candidate at Cornell University, with a look into how we can achieve a more equitable and livable future.
5: Dear friends, the year is twenty seventeen and 82 years of age I feel like I'm 25 with the new technology. I'm writing this in my flood protected house, although at this stage the floods have become the norm as opposed to one-off events they were back in 2018. Droughts are pretty bad too and the food system is straining, but I have a good income and live in an advanced economy which means that I am okay. Population control started in the UK and in most global north countries around 2055, something that's still trying to be placed into the developing world with no luck. The water systems in the world have wreaked havoc with the intensity and location of rainfall events changing with no sign of settling down. My water is coming from a huge transfer scheme up north that I worked on for a decade or so. Speaking of which, the pension age recently went up to 90. Storms and typhoons like Sandy, Maria and Mancourt happen pretty regularly and the news doesn't know which stories to cover sometimes because there are so many. Governments are clinging on claiming to be useful and relevant but really, most things are provided by private companies now. They hire families across generations. Three of my great-grandchildren, who've just turned four, five and eight, already have contracts to work in these places. Migrant policies are very strict and harsh. Sometimes it's hard to watch the news. We really failed multiple generations across multiple geographies. China's One Belt, One Road initiative was finished and used for trade for a short while, but now it's used as a global water transfer system, given the impermeable surface and constant flooding occurring along this length. The African countries banded together and became one federated country, which looks promising moving forwards. The Euro is on its second try after suffering multiple setbacks with countries going bankrupt. I have to admit, a lot of the news goes over my head. We almost fixed the global food issues by intensifying agriculture in Africa, and going for precision agriculture in other parts of the world, but transboundary resource issues and bickering delayed things to the point where climate change caught up with us, destroyed the soils and ruined the infrastructure in place to harvest the crops. And because no one was in rural areas anymore, we all live in high-density cities now. It took a long time to get things up and running again. The usual human issues have endured. Wars, migration, the idea of something over there not impacting what happens over here. But there are glimmers of hope here and there, much like it was in 2018. And 2028. And 2050 now I think of it. Anyway, on to the advice. You're all capable friends. You have many skills in different areas. Media, transport, marketing, engineering. The list goes on. But in 2018, if I remember correctly, you were all working in large cities of the world with projects mainly in the global north. My advice to you would be to shift your focus to Africa and Asia. We were so close to doing great things, but we just lost momentum and couldn't get over some of the hurdles in place. You guys are key. You, your friends, your colleagues are key to fixing the issue. And I send this to you in the knowledge that your breadth of experience is what is needed. Financing, infrastructure, marketing, behavioural sciences, cooperation, flexibility. This is what is needed and it was needed around the start of the 21st century. From where I sit now, it looks like we backloaded the work. And to be honest, it wasn't intentional. We just took a route that was filled with paralysis through indecision. If only we had stopped duplicating work across organisations and focused on the contextual issues. As long as what you do is appropriate and possible, and then you build in the flexibility for future events around that. We had all the info and tech back in 2018. Just the willpower failed us. Maybe it's part of the human condition. In summary, it's a mixed bag. Winners and losers, as always. Lottery numbers for the last week of August 2019 are 21, 12, 45, 34, 8, and 22. Goodbye from the future.
0: In the middle of the season, we had the amazing author Elizabeth Rush for an interview about coastal community adaptation. She reads us an excerpt from her book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore.
6: So this comes from a chapter in Rising called risk. Risk is a word with more than one definition. Merriam-Webster says that risk is a situation involving, quote, the possibility of injury and peril, and also, quote, the chance that an investment, such as a stock or commodity, will lose value. One definition is physical and the other fiscal. Lately, I've been thinking that the difference between the two is a question of proximity. To be at risk means occupying the space of the threatened body drawn close to danger. If peril is primarily financial, however, the person assessing the risk is most likely standing in a safer move, far from the flood lines. From a distance, risk looks like something that can be managed through informed decision-making or insurance. Where Samuel investigates natural disasters from this perspective, I'm more inclined to consider the former definition first. Over the past half a century, our collective perception of the kinds of risk posed by flooding has undergone a profound transformation. Rebecca Elliott, a professor of sociology at the London School of Economics, writes that before the advent of the National Flood Insurance Program, floods were considered, quote, unfortunate events that could be neither foreseen nor prevented. Those afflicted by floods were often blameless victims facing misfortune that might befall anyone, even those who had made the right choices. We used to think of someone who flooded as being exposed unfairly to a certain kind of unpredictable and unwieldy weather, as suffering an act of God. However, when that National Flood Insurance Program began mapping flood risk zones and conducting probabilistic risk assessments, Flooding became, as Elliot put it, a scientifically foreseeable patterned event. What one can foresee, one can prepare for. And so individuals were expected to account for and manage the costs of living in the floodplain by purchasing insurance. Put another way, today, if people are uninsured, they're perceived as having participated in their own undoing.
0: Alan Hesse wrote our next postcard. As the author of a new climate change comic book, Alan reflects on the need for creativity in the sciences.
7: Dear friends, it's that time of year again, coming up to Christmas soon. Even now, in 2028, at 8:58, 58, the magic of the holidays has never left me. A big part of that is just the change of season. Where I live, I've always enjoyed the cold of winter. This year is a bit warmer, but not that bad. We haven't quite achieved the 1.5 degree target for limiting global warming yet, but now that all governments, including the US, which are thankfully back on track, are finally complying with strict regulations on emissions controls, things are looking a heck of a lot better than they did before 2020. Those greenhouse gases, of course, are still up there, the accumulation of hundreds of years, but it looks like we're on track to at least avoid a 2 degree raise in global temperature. That's what the latest science says anyway. There's so much science whizzing around, so much information. Thousands of scientific papers a year. All of that, of course, is fundamental. Science guides policy, informs the media, influences public opinion. The science is vital. But if information is just technical, and when there is too much of it, it can also be counterproductive. We quickly get saturated, and there is a risk of shutting down, and the masses become indifferent. That's dangerous. It got to that point about ten years ago. When climate change became almost like a new fashionable buzzword. Everyone was talking about it but very few actually really knew what they were talking about. There was a lot of confused messaging, some saying the planet was doomed beyond all salvation, others saying it wasn't so bad. Some even thought climate change didn't exist. Seems hard to believe. So what's really cool now is how the arts have really come to the aid of science. The cavalry arrived. I've always said that art and science are actually only two sides of the same coin. The coin of human creativity and expression. They belong together. The ancients knew that. Arts do something that science cannot. They get right into human emotions. That's important because we tend to make decisions based on emotions rather than what we know. So it's great to see famous actors and other artists getting more and more involved in climate action. Setting an example for millions. I feel very proud and humble that my own cartoon character, Polo the Bear, has got so famous. He has so many fans now. Above all, what we need is an informed, engaged public. People can't just afford to stay ignorant or misinformed anymore, leaving the hard parts for the technicians and politicians. That's why I'm really pleased to see how talk and action on climate change has broken free of being limited to the confines of science and policy. It's become something you hear about all the time, in households, at primary schools, while you do your shopping, on supermarket labels, everywhere. With the rise of social media, democratic expression across most of the world has bloomed like never before. Look at the People's Chair that the UN launched for the first time back in 2018 for that year's climate talks, thanks to the help of the legendary Sir David Attenborough. This is the kind of thing that is keeping this planet going. Only just, mind you. We still need to get better at being responsible humans. And what's also cool is that it's no longer all just doom and gloom stuff. What I hear these days is above all solutions what people are actually doing, at home, at work, while out shopping, to limit their carbon footprint, act responsibly, taking care of our Mother Earth. All these behaviour changes address a lot more than climate change. They also address so many other issues of our time, like deforestation, water rights, poor governments, poverty, solid waste. That's a huge change from the days before 2020. It started back then, of course, but this new age of acting responsibly has really taken off. I guess we humans are really good at adapting. Although in this case, we did leave it very late. I would say too late in many ways. Have we learned our lesson? I think so. I hope so. Cheers.
0: Next up, we had Danielle Neighbor of the Wilson Center taking us to future Beijing in her postcard.
8: It's 2050, and I've just arrived back in Beijing after four weeks in Washington, D.C., I'm again reminded by how differently day-to-day life looks for each capital city. Here in China, all the food and supplies I need are delivered by drones right to my door, except for one notable exception, water. I have to retrieve water every other day, where I stand in line for anywhere between two and six hours at the treatment plant. If I were ultra-wealthy, I could pay migrant workers to stand in line for me, but trustworthy water waiters cost a pretty penny. All others are notorious for stealing your water and replacing it with undrinkable polluted water from the river. That's not a risk I wanna take, so I spend every other afternoon in line, where I'm given three five-liter sacks of drinking water, my allotment for 48 hours. While in line, I try not to think of the old tap spigot in my apartment, which is rusted over and hasn't been in use for longer than I've been alive. It's not only a reminder of how old my apartment is, It's evidence of the fact that Beijingers once had running water at home. Long ago, after Beijing depleted its reservoirs in 2014, the capital began heavily relying on a massive infrastructure project that shuttles water from the country's southern provinces to arid northern regions. It also tried to implement water recycling, which was a smart move. In the face of a changing climate, water recycling can give cities a more self-sufficient water supply. The more water that's recycled, the less people must live at the whim of rain that may never come, or come in the form of a massive storm where a year's worth of water hits in a week. While recycling sounded promising in theory, the government took the wrong route with implementation. Instead of recycling water efficiently in a centralized plant, Beijing required individual landlords to recycle their own water at each building. The city's recycled water supply was almost completely decentralized. Unfortunately, the government didn't provide them with financial support, nor teach the landlords how to operate the plants. Tenants soon lost trust in the quality of water provided by such systems. They revolted in 2024, prompting the government to completely abandon all water recycling programs. Since then, the city relied solely on the massive pipes that brought water from South China for years afterwards. It wasn't until the South-North Water Transfer Project ran dry that the city began recycling its water in massive treatment plants. People started trusting the centrally treated water again, but the city was already so water-scarce that they implemented a water allotment program. It's been in operation for the last few years, but only those with official residence papers, called hukou, can get water. Last year, after many people without a hukou died from drinking polluted river water, the millions of migrants in Beijing revolted. Those of us lucky enough to have papers are too scared to speak out against the injustice. After all, we can't afford to be stripped of water access. In the U.S., both the public and lawmakers resisted water recycling as well. Anti-recycling campaigns convinced many people that recycled water was dangerous and akin to drinking toilet water. It took a lot of effort for experts to combat such resistance. Thankfully, California's successful implementation of a statewide recycling program in 2028 helped convince people of its safety. The national government slowly rolled out subsidies and water recycling mandates. While it prevented the need to publicly line up for water, like in Beijing, water bodies like the Colorado River reached dangerously low flows and critical species went extinct. In both China and the United States, these issues could have been avoided by properly implementing water recycling technology and investing in education programs to show the public that it is both harmless and invaluable. In the case of Beijing, the government shouldn't have implemented a decentralized recycling system in such a large urban area. Meanwhile, in more rural settings, decentralized recycling should have been implemented, along with subsidized training so those operating decentralized plants could do so properly. In both countries, if robust public education campaigns had been funded in 2018, the public distress that led to revolts in China and scarcity in the U.S. would have likely been avoided. The sooner recycling solutions are implemented, the more resilient cities will be to unexpected shocks that threaten water resources. Water recycling can and should serve as a part of a holistic solution for countries and cities to increase their water security. In fact, it's the only way Washington and Beijing are still capable of supporting the needs of their citizens at all. To those of you in 2018, it's not too late to push for laws and mandate the implementation of thoughtful and robust water recycling programs.
0: In the final episode of Season 2, we heard from Dr. Raha Hakimdavar of the U.S. Forest Service. In a break from some of the other postcards, I think you'll really enjoy her poetic story.
9: What I'll share is not so much a postcard from the future, as it is a poem of the present, reminiscent of the past. A river runs through my city. Have you heard of it? It's a famous city, or at least it once was. There are famous bridges crossing that river, the one in my city. There have been songs written about this river and its famous bridges in my famous city. Maybe you've heard of them. It's long been the admiration of poets and philosophers and engineers alike. People used to travel from faraway lands just to get a glimpse of this river in my famous city. And when destiny uprooted me to a new home, far away from the city with the famous river and the famous bridges, I took solace in my memories of that river, the river that gives life, the Zaya Visions of my father resting his head on one of the 33 arches of the Sio looking out at that beautiful river flowing through the city that he loved, the city that we left. Families picnicking and sipping tea nearby on hot summer nights. Children playing, their screams of joy annoying the lovebirds nearby fighting for their privacy in the dark. Men stealing a moment of peace in the early morning hours on their way to work, sitting on the steps of the Pola the Khaju Bridge looking out. The echoing sound of old songs being projected through the acoustics of the bridge's arches at dusk, through the voices of men past their prime, reminiscing of life in a finer time. Arches perfectly constructed to keep and share centuries-long stories and secrets in song. All of this exists because of the river I speak of, the Zayanderud, the river that gives life. But for too long now, those famous bridges crossing that famous river have become obsolete. The river I speak of, the one crossing my city, is no longer a river at all. It is completely dry. The birds and fish that used to be there are long gone, replaced by standing puddles of sludge and that particular smell of life still trying to survive. So when the river that gives life no longer does, what are we to do? Do we change its name? What has happened, you ask? Weren't the Persians the ones that invented the Qanats? Weren't they the revered engineers of their time? I suppose my ancestors could not have imagined the world with so many children of their children and so much competition for that precious resource that helped build their empires at the time. They could not have imagined their reservoirs being so parched. Yet maybe it's a consequence of the persistent drought. Maybe it's the fault of a management system that is corrupt. And so we say, God willing, the water will come back. But what if God is not willing? What do we do then? What can we do then? Esfahan Nisvijahan. Esfahan is half the world, the poets and the philosophers, the famous ones, would say. Well, if half the world is contained in my famous city, as they say, then is half the world suffering the same fate? And what happens if one day we no longer have the features that inspire our poems, our stories, and our next generation of poets and philosophers and engineers alike? What happens if we no longer have the rivers that give life? And what happens if the world no longer knows that famous river in my famous city because it is no longer there? A longer version of this poem was shared at this year's Stockholm World Water Week during the closing of the session Achieving the UNFCCC and SDG Goals Through Water Management, a UNFCCC-Talanoa Dialogue. A summary of the session and transcript of the poem can be found on the UNFCCC-Talanoa dialogues portal. I'd like to talk about what inspired the writing of this poem. Growing up, my father used to tell me stories about the Zayanderud, which is in our hometown of Esfahan, the third largest city in Iran and the historic former capital of the Persian Empire. My father would tell me about how he used to go fishing in the river, he used to go swimming with his friends. He even told me about kids that got caught in the undercurrents, and some of them drowned. These stories are now unimaginable to me, as that part of the river that crosses Esfahan has pretty much been dry for the past several years. You can actually walk across it. It's hard to overstate the importance of the Zayandeh Rud to Esfahan, not just as a resource for the city, but as a central part of the city's cultural fabric, its identity. If you Google Esfahan right now, almost half of the images that will pop up are of the Zayandeh Rud and the historic bridges that span it. The oldest of which was built in 5th century AD during the Safavier dynasty. So part of what inspired me to write the poem is that I'm saddened by the fact that I will likely not be able to tell my children the same stories that my father told me. In a rapidly changing world, when rivers like the one that used to run through my city disappear, we're not just losing sources of water for drinking, sanitation, agriculture, industry, and energy. Those are things that we can quantify, we can build hydrological models around. We're also losing culture, we're losing history, we're losing our stories. Those are things that are much more difficult to model and quantify, but I believe are much simpler to build mutual understanding around. And I look to the day when we'll have a book of poetry about every river and lake that will become required reading for every engineering student.
0: Thanks again for tuning into this special episode of Climate Ready. We can't wait to get back on the air with season three soon. Make sure to subscribe to Climate Ready wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. The Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Tembo.